0: Well, hello and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. Now, this is a show all about helping you deliver e-commerce. Wow. Well. And to help us do just that today, I am chatting with Nirav Sheth from ANATA about what do multi-million dollar brands have in common? Oh, yes, that's what we're getting into. But before we jump into the conversation, why not head over to the website ecommercepodcast.net, sign up to the newsletter, and every week we will send you the notes and the links from the show straight to your inbox automatically. You don't have to do anything, they just come to you. And whilst you're there, check out e-commerce cohort who hey, bring this show to us. Oh yes, the e-commerce cohort, which is our monthly membership group that you can join if you're an e-commerce, if you're an e-commercer as I like to call people, uh, then do check it out. It's all designed to help you do e-commerce better. It's not expensive to join. You should learn a shed load of stuff. Uh, and also you get to watch the podcast live as well. As we record them, you can come and ask your gu- our guests, your guests, I guests, well, our guests, or everyone's guests, I suppose. Uh, you can ask some questions and comments uh, and you can tell this is all very professionally produced. Uh, welcome to the show. So without further ado, let's talk about Nirav, the CEO and mastermind behind Anata, the go-to partner for skyrocketing e-commerce brands. He's the secret weapon for the big names in D2C, like Roth's, Dollar Shave Club, Athletic Greens, and the list goes on and on. Nirav has taken Anata on a thrilling journey propelling over 100 D2C brands to the stratosphere of revenue growth and conversion success. And when it comes to turning promising brands into industry leaders, he's definitely got the Midas touch. Unlike me, because the music finished like just a few seconds before I got to the end of your bio. I was thinking, am I going to make it? I didn't make it, but now anyway, great to have you on the show, man. How are you doing? I'm doing amazing. How are you? Yeah, yeah, good. It's the end of my day here. Uh, but for you, I, I imagine you're just starting out, just looking at the brightness
1: difference more than anything on the camera. <laughs> I think it just had really good lighting put into this room. <laughs> it's actually a pretty pretty gloomy day here in Austin. It's around 2 p.m., but, but it's pretty gloomy yeah. today.
0: Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. Speaking of Austin,
1: uh,
0: last time I was in Austin, I was there visiting an amazing chap uh, called Brett Curry, who doesn't live in Austin, but he just happened to be there. Um, I don't know if you know Brett Curry from OMG Commerce. He's he's an absolute legend. He's got his own podcast. Really cool bloke. And we had we hooked up and we had a great time. Had some food, had a had a had a beer and just chatted for hours and hours and hours. And it was lovely to see him. Uh, but Brett's a great guy. Oh yeah, I've, I've had hey, a chance
1: to be on his podcast as well, and uh, okay. he actually introduced me to this really great mastermind group. So um, I'll get to see him in, in a couple of weeks.
0: Fan to what? tell him I said hello. Uh, he's
1: oh, he's an absolute oh.
0: legend. You know, he's got eight kids. No, does he really? Yep. yep, eight kids. Wow. Eight. Yep. Eight, uh, wow. <laughs> Eight kids. And the guy that introduced me and uh, me, and if you have not listened, if you're listening to the show, check out the episode with Brett Curry. He gets into everything to do with YouTube ads, which is his specialty, uh, which was just brilliant, actually, a really brilliant episode. Um, but yeah, the chap that introduced us was Jared Mitchell. And um, Jared uh, from Beefy Sites, he lives on the West Coast. And um, he's like, it's just really funny when you have Jared and his wife, uh, Brett and his wife, and the eight kids. It's like ten people descend on your house, uh, and it's just utter chaos. But it's brilliant and fun, and they they love it and they enjoy it. So, um, but the reason I was in Texas was because of Sub Summit twenty twenty three. Sub Summit twenty twenty four. There's a very strong chance I'll be back. By the way, just a quick shameless plug here. And I've just got an email through from Lauren who heads up uh, SubSummit. Uh, and it said, listen, Matt, I hope you're doing well. Um, I wanted to send along a link that you can share with the podcast to snag free tickets and travel for SubSummit 2024 via their hosted merchants program. Uh, so if you are a D2C subscription company looking to go to SubSummit in Dallas, you may qualify to attend Sub-Summit at little or no cost. Via this program, qualified merchants will receive a complimentary ticket to Sub-Summit plus travel and hotel reimbursements up to $750 per person. Uh, All you have to do is meet with solution providers in no-commitment 15-minute meetings, speed-dating style. All meetings are double opt-in. Both people have to agree to meet each other and they're valuable to everyone and the meetings last Uh, Only like two or three hours on day two of the event, Uh, and you should see. I don't know if you've been to Sub Summit, but you should see the the room where they do these sort of speed dating meetings. It's like it goes on forever. Uh, But if that's of any interest (laughs) to anybody listening to the show, sorry.
1: I was going to say I'm actually be speaking at Sub Summit next year. So no way, we should get together, man. Yes, definitely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What are you going to be speaking on? Uh, specifically subscription revenue and how to improve it, especially working with the brands like Athletic Greens and so many really large, large-scale subscription brands. We'll be speaking about tips and ways to really increase revenue and, and drive retention. Fantastic. Well, yeah.
0: Looks like we'll be both in the Speaker's Lounge. Nirav, uh, we'll definitely have to yes. look up, man. That sounds fantastic. I didn't know that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, if you're listening and you want to meet myself, come join us. Uh, and if you are a DTC brand, check out... The Hosted Merchants Program, but do be warned, dear listener, the seats go quick uh, because of obvious reasons, uh, but do come check it out. Um, So is this this going to be your first time to summit? It will be, yeah. First time. That's exciting. Exciting. And not far to travel from Austin uh, for yourself. No. Just a couple hour drive to Dallas. Yeah, yeah. I took. Have you heard of the Von Lane? No. So I took the Von Lane from Dallas to Austin. And this was refer- This was recommended to me by f- the friends I was staying with in Dallas. Because I said, I've got to go to Austin. What's the best way to do that? And they said, just, honestly, just take the Von Lane. Uh, so check it out. It's like this. I don't know how to describe it other than it's like this really super comfy executive style bus. And you get on mm. in this big old leather seat. You work because they've got amazing Wi-Fi. They bring you Cokes whenever you want it, and then you get off at the other end tightly refreshed. It's amazing. So check it out, Von Lee. Anyway, I think that's enough plugs for everything. Let's talk about what you're doing. Um, so you're, you've been working with brands like Athletic Greens. You mentioned that. We mentioned that in the bio. Um, so... You've obviously worked with some pretty impressive large brands, near. Out, hence the title of the podcast, you know, about um, what the multi-million brands, multi-million dollar brands have in common. So let's start there, right? What are some of the things that they have in common that we should really pay attention to um, as e-commerce brands?
1: Yeah, Matt, like having worked with so many of these multimillion dollar brands, specifically brands that we started at the very beginning, early days, startup side, emerging all the way into like their growth and into their enterprise state. There's kind of a couple of things we've seen in common, uh, working with, with these brands. Um, number one is the founders themselves. Um, when, what, what we found from the founders that what got them into the startup rarely works once they go into mid-market and the yeah. founders that understand that and that they truly get it are the ones that succeed. And what I mean by that is uh, a couple things. Like one of the things is that in the early stages, pure hustle gets you so many stages, like hustle is yeah. great. Everybody talks about it, you know, don't let it fool you. Like it's, it's, it, it is important in the early stages. You push through, break through walls, like kick butt and, and keep moving <laughs> forward but when you (laughs) well when you go to like mid-market and you're trying to go past the ceiling of like 10 million dollars 15 million dollars 20 million dollars the smartest founders that i found and the ones that really kind of get them to the next stage realize that what got them there to that stage of 10 15 20 million dollars is not what's going to get them to the hundred million dollar stage it's not what's going to get them to the one billion dollar stage uh because pure hustle is just not going to carry you forward (laughs) you every brand that has kind of moved from one stage to another has kind of seen that the strategies are pretty different um like and and the strategies that they employ in the early days is not going to be the same strategies you use moving forward and the ones that are as they're getting it they kind of leverage different sets of teams and different sets of groups of people both internally and externally to be able to make that happen And what I mean by that is that like the same, maybe you you've worked with five, six, maybe up to 15 people on your team and kind of internal and external. And those people might understand all the things that you need to do in a startup to pivot, to make changes, to do quick reacting stuff. But then the long-term plays of brand and the long-term plays of like thinking about multiple channels and how the, how to go about that from a strategy perspective, aren't going to, might not be the same people. And yeah. so the ones that really get it and, and do it well, especially to give you an example, I feel like the brand Careyuma, who I worked with very closely, did it really well. Yeah, um, their two founders, David and Fernando, they both created a, a footwear company out of Brazil, and uh, came into like the skateboarding, surfing kind of community, going up against Vans and and the you know the all, all the players in that space. And uh, they 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 learned that early. They kind of made their first million, two million, and they're like, you know what? We don't know what we don't know. And we need to be smart about putting in the right investments into the team. And so they leverage a company like us to really take over their digital product side where they were doing it internally. They were doing it with a freelancer and kind of making that happen, both on design and development side, but knowing that you can be able to make that change and to be able to trust the group of people that you're doing it because they've seen other brands do it from mm-hmm. time to time, that's what they that's what they use. So I think number one is like the founders is, is very unique when it comes to the, the multi million dollar brands. That's um, really and that, The
0: other part. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's really interesting. It's interesting you you sort of jumped jumped straight into this word hustle, which became, I think, popular with the advent of Gary Vaynerchuk's rise on social media. It was his thing, wasn't it? You know this this word hustle, and I, um, and I I'm intrigued how how you've gone for that and said, well, that's a good. The way I probably phrase it now is is to say. Hustle is a good starter, but it's not necessarily a great sort of finish or a great, you know, for the next stage. It doesn't take you through that ceiling, does it really? Um, but it does get you off the launch pad. Um, so it it, does. what are some of the things that we need to think about then once we get off the launch pad? You know, we, which is it's going to be hard if you're hustling to try and find the time to think about it. But, you know, what what are some of the things that we should we should think about?
1: I think the, the most important thing to start out thinking about is like the team that you surround yourself with. Because mm-hmm. like the team is is absolutely critical towards your success. So whether it's like the the brands like I talked about, Karyuma or it's teams like Athletic Greens, um, they when they started working with us and their CEO at that time was was someone uh, who I think of as a dear friend. His name is Adam Trouncer, and he was their CEO. He really built this phenomenal team around him, working with Chris, the founder, and they put together like this amazing team to go forward with. And I yeah. really think that a lot of the success behind AG isn't just because they launched really good ad-, ad campaigns, it's because they brought in the right team and the right strategies to kind of be able to scale going forward. So I think team is like absolutely critical. But then two, along with team is strategy. Like, what is the strategy that we can see that works either in this industry or in a parallel industry, and that if we use that or kind of mirror off of that, we could actually see our uh, our success grow. And this is not a, hey, do what your competitors are doing. This is more of a, let's try out like proven strategies embedded in research, embedded in like uh, actual data that can make things work. This isn't just about looking at your next competitor and saying, well, if he's doing it, we should be doing it. That is not the way to do do things. (laughs) (laughs) Embedded in data. I like that. We had um,
0: Neil Hoynes on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, who's the chief. Google's chief strategist, and he wrote the book "Converted," which is all about using data to win over your customers' hearts and minds. I think it's something like that. Mm-hmm. He also spoke at Sub last year. That's where we met. Um, really interesting guy. Saying the same thing again. What's the what you know? Think about the data. What's the data telling you? But what sort of strategies um, do you see working at the moment uh, that you know maybe we need to look at in a little bit more detail and find the data for?
1: Yeah, I think I. Well, one of the things I'm, I'm learning, like, and this goes back to the earlier part of like what, what we help build million dollar brands is like brands that are leveraging a strategy of like leaning in on a specific channel makes a, a really big importance. And so what we've seen, we've seen every single time is that the fastest growing brands actually don't diversify their channels until they can get one to two channels moving really, really smoothly. And okay. I know that this is going to be counter to like a lot of people's conversations like, Hey, you need to be on TikTok. Hey, you need to be on YouTube. Hey, you need to get your emails on. Hey, you need to do text messages. You're going to get a lot of that as a merchant, right? And, and yeah. as a growing, growing a brand, you get pushed in so many different scenarios. But yeah. what rarely do they tell you is that the brands that have succeeded the, the, like the fastest and, and furthest have actually haven't done it off of seven different channels all at once. They've actually started off in one or two channels. And to give you an example, when we work with Rothies on the early days, their primary channels was paid ma- paid social and yeah. email, and they could bank on that. And when I say they could bank on it, I'm talking about if they double, tripled or even 10 X their spend on it, they yeah. kind of knew very close, very clearly what the expected output yeah. would be. Now on paid social, they kind of knew like there was a certain point that like they wouldn't be able to make as much, but like they knew every time they sent on the email, that they could count on X amount of revenue coming in every single time. Yeah. And so I would really highly suggest like thinking about one to two channels that are actually scalable. And when I say actually scalable, you have to think about the mathematical terms of that. Like if I invest $10 and I can get $100 out, does that mean the same thing if I invest $10,000? Can I get $100,000 out? Yeah. Right? Do the math on it and see, like when I say scale, you could have to be able to push dollars into it to actually end up coming back to you. Very, very wise. I This thing about different channels,
0: is, it always comes up. You know, there's always this pressure um, because people are told, you know, you've got to jump on TikTok, right? You've just got to do it, especially if you want to reach Gen Z. You've got to be on TikTok. TikTok's cheap. It's cheaper than Facebook. Um, it's cheaper than Meta and so on and so forth. And it is, and there are opportunities there. But I I think there's always been this danger that you, you do that sort of um, bed hopping thing, where you're just going from one to the next, do you know what I mean? Just not really doing it well, but just going to the next thing, hoping that that's going to land something for you, because whatever you did before didn't give you the ROI as quickly as you wanted it, quite a thing. Um, and so it, it's good, I, I'm, I'm I, as you were talking, I was sort of thinking back to when we started Jersey, which was one of our um, e-com sites uh, that, we, that I used to run before we sold it. And it was in the heyday when it was growing at crazy amounts, I mean, we turned over millions in that business. Um, we just did paid. We just did Google, uh, Google Ads, and email. That was our whole strategy, you know. Um, and we we even we we didn't really do Facebook that well, to be honest with you, for the longest time. Um, but we just focused on those two channels, and we did those channels really, really well. And then we sort of started to grow into the other channels. And so I'm sitting here thinking, on one hand. I've I've done what you've said so I feel slightly proud of myself (laughs) Uh, but on the other hand I don't know if I still do that Um, because it is tempting isn't it to get sucked in and drawn into I've got to do Instagram I've got to do YouTube I've got to do the podcast I've got to do the blog I've got to do email I've got to do this I've got to do that and so on and so forth how do you how do you figure out I guess what channels people focus on or should focus on
1: I mean, it it depends on a few different things, right? So first, where is your audience? And like, if your audience, if you're selling skincare to 60 year olds, maybe TikTok isn't the audience for you. Maybe Facebook is the audience for you. So one, you gotta know where your audience is and where, where they're using it and feel good about that audience. Like if you're still in the early stages where you're still trying to find product market fit, Maybe you don't know where your audience yet is, but as you start developing that and get more sophisticated, you'll start understanding who your core customer base is and who really loves your product the most to find like the best traction for it. Two, I also think a little bit comes down to what you're willing to do. Like where mm. are you going to play by like when you produce content or your marketing team produces content, where do they love posting and engaging in the community? If it feels so much like a one way street of just being able to post content and then you just don't care. So you're like, hey, I'm just going to take this content and push it out to seven different social platforms. And that's it. And I'm not going to interact or engage. One of the things you said on on this was like, are you doing it well? Because a lot of people are just doing it, but that doesn't mean that they're doing it well. And that means that you're super inefficient with your your spent whether it's an actual paid spend that you're doing on advertisements or it's a spend on actually having your marketing team produce that content. Cause like there's spend either way, you're going to be producing content, whether you're doing it yourself with your own time or you're paying others to do it for you. And so if you take all that together, are you even being efficient with it? And the only way to be efficient with it is to be doing it based on your own passions, your own interests and your own curiosity. Um, A lot of times, like, you know, when you're engaging on this, uh, especially on content marketing, but also email marketing and things like that, kind of have to enjoy what you're doing. If you're not enjoying it and you're not participating in that way, you're going to find yourself that you're not going to be efficient with it because you're not actually taking those times to actually be curious, to engage, to build a community. And what we all know is that the, the Brands that have done this really well have built really strong communities out of it. Like uh, uh, one of the examples I have with Rothy's is that Rothy's had this Facebook group called the Rothy's Addicts. They were a legitimate like 50 or 100,000 person group of like people who just loved every shoe they talked to. They had these rainbows that they created from all the different colors of the shoes. Like they created such a fan base. And it was yeah. created by Rothies like they created the initial base and then they kind of like put somebody else in charge and they led them. But it was just such a cool community that like mm-hmm. they got to a place where before they even launch a product, sometimes they had hackers in that group that figured out what product was launching. And it was kind of OK because it was just like, cool, you figured it out. And now the community knows and the community gets first access to it. And cool, you're part of something. But I think building that community is what has helped brands like. The, we just spoke about Gary V and like his entire community. His his entire business is built around community and that yeah. fan base that he's established for himself. And I think all brands, if they're really going to do this right, they're going to need to build that community. And if they're going to build that community, they're going to have to enjoy doing yeah. it and feel like they're in the right place in the right ecosystem. Yeah, totally. That's super powerful yeah. stuff, man. And I
0: I think it's it's just refreshing to hear. Um, and I'm thinking of the guy, you know, who, or, or lady, who has started their e-com business, you know, they're, they're, they're the kitchen table entrepreneur. And they're, you know, they're hustling hard to do their business. They're doing all the marketing and so on and so forth and everything to do. And sometimes because there's so much to do, you don't put that, that uh, I think you use the word passion, that je ne sais quoi, you know, into the, into the creation of... The content, it's like, well, I'll just post this on, I need to post something, I'll just post this. I'll have AI generate a post, or I'll just take a picture of a product and I'll whack it on because it's easy. Um, rather than taking the time to curate meaningful content to build that community. Um, and I think it's one of the big tensions we have as founders. You know, as when we start up businesses, because you are hustling, because you are doing everything, creating the time that, it, that you need to curate that community online is is, is, is well it's quite involved, isn't it? And I remember I remember just the simple things like we were really good with email marketing. I mean properly full on good at email marketing. At least I thought I was. And then we I took a gamble and I got an agency involved just on the side of our email. Well, blow me. They they've taken it to the next level. You know, these guys are passionate and they understand all the tricks and the and the strategies involved. Um, and they understand how to engage people in that in a way that we didn't, because it's what they do day in, day out. They sort of grew in that. Um, the same when we outsourced our um, Facebook marketing, you know, and, and we were just like blown away by the results. You're like, flipping, off. why did we not do this sooner? <laughs> um, but one of the things that you, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this. One of the things that I would struggle to outsource is is that stuff that has to come from the owner, that brand voice, that that. That uh, the you know the the owner getting on the camera and 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 doing the Instagram lives or whatever. I I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- there's there's components like I think we should always do the things that we feel not only just most comfortable doing, but the things that excite us. Because mm. even a founder-led video that kind of showcases like if it feels forced, if it feels yeah. like they're not enjoying doing it, it all shows up the emotions yeah. come off on the video the emotions come off on the ad and that doesn't really help you so i think as founders and ceos of brands that you that you're a part of you have to kind of pick and choose where do you, or where is your expertise lie and yeah. you know, outsource the areas that don't fit your specific taste but don't do it based upon discomfort so i'm not talking about <laughs> comfortability for the sake of like Oh, I'm comfortable doing this and not comfortable doing this. Like, I'm not comfortable speaking a lot of times in the initial stages. But then once you start getting into it, it's like, oh, this is fun. And I actually enjoy it. So I wouldn't say don't do based on comfortability, but do it based upon like interest, curiosity, things that kind of like because that all shows up in in how how you do things. And so I don't think any founder should be forced to do any of those videos. But if it can help, by by all means, do it. But if we go back to the conversation around the hustle, don't the, the worst thing you can do as you've built your brands, like again, hustle might have gotten you to where you are by doing all those different things, but that doesn't mean that that's gonna carry you forward. You don't know, mm-hmm. in, my, in my own personal story, when I created my agency and I marked like focused on the work, my was my head was down I barely ever looked up to even try to market the company and I it was great because we got a lot of referral business and all that but it wasn't great because I actually didn't do any marketing so like I didn't have a ton of top of the lead lead gen and funnel overall and that hurt us in in the long term and so you know you have to figure out like what things are going to actually move the needle for my company was actually, hey, we need to focus on marketing and sales. So let's go build that engine. But that means I have to build a team underneath me that can actually do that work. And I think that that's where you have to get in the mindset of like build teams in the places that, you know, you can rinse and repeat or get things operationalized. And then you go focus on the the next thing and the next thing. And as a CEO and founder, we kind of meta like we morph ourselves into different individuals almost like we almost have like ten different kind of characters we create and like one time we're here and one time we're yeah. here. But we shouldn't try to do all of those things at the same time because once yeah. we do, multitasking is like the killer. Of like any <laughs> level of productivity and creativity. I don't. If you can do multitasking, amazing. By all means, do it. But I suck at it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. It just it does destroy it, and I love that. I love yeah. what you said. Do what it what excites you and what's going to move the needle. Um, it's a great. It's a great. Let me ask you a question then. Uh, you have your agency. Obviously, you talked about the 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 time when you had your head so deep into you know your client work that you didn't market the business so you grew that team what excites you as the founder and the ceo what excite you know what moves the needle for you what sort of things do you do you like doing um that sort of works for your business other than coming what, what onto I this love... podcast obviously
1: <laughs> obviously, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love talking to amazing founders i love kind of hearing their story and what they're doing but i also love problem solving so i love being faced with like a major challenge when it comes to tech technology or mm. user experience or kind of places where businesses hit ceilings and being like, why have we hit the ceiling here? What's the next stage of where we go? But having those conversations, strategizing together, talking through different kind of ways of solving it is is what excites me. And that's what I end up doing regularly. is like I spend my time talking about those subjects recently. Uh, we, I, I gave this really fun talk at the Shopify conference, which was just about a week ago, about how we launched a $1.5 billion GMV brand in 30 days. It's the fastest <laughs> ever enterprise implementation ever. Wow. And uh, it was such a crazy project, but it was such a fun project to solve for with my team. I definitely mm. did not do this alone, but with my team. We were able to actually take a very, very large enterprise brand that we'll be announcing shortly. I think it's going to go live in, in the next week or two, and, and I'll be happy to share, share who this is. But this is a very large company that needed to go live because they had come out of bankruptcy. They got bought over by a private equity company and they needed to make their site live. So we actually got legitimately 30 days to go build this Shopify Plus based enterprise site completely end-to-end. And I'm not talking about a proof of concept. I'm talking about yeah. a complete end-to-end build with 30,000 SKUs, 8 million customers being migrated, all of this stuff all done. And like, that's the fun stuff that I enjoy doing. I love not only being able to strategize an idea and figure out how to do it, but then I love being able to share that with others so that to know that this is a possibility because mm. being able to beat timelines, like normally something like this takes six months to do like at minimum, so to say we got it done in thirty days is 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 a moonshot by all means, and like we're so glad that it was successful. And there was like ninety nine reasons why it was going to be unsuccessful, and and luckily we got through it. But it was a it was, it was a big thing. So that was a something I enjoy doing, and I love doing as a, as a founder. Oh. <laughs> I'm just sitting there listening to you talk like thirty
0: thousand products, and what was it eight thousand customers in 30 days i 8 million a oh, 8 million custom why wow, Jesus! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Shopify Plus is come on it's coming a long way because eh? there were there, there were times when you wouldn't have been able to do that with Shopify but um this is where it, I think the development those guys have been doing has been phenomenal and 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 it enables you to do things like that
1: absolutely i mean shopify was never considered the enterprise platform for for big you know billion dollar gmv companies but if you look across the board most of the big gmv like uh pure play d2c brands are leveraging shopify but not outside of the pure plays the retail side they're moving over to shopify too at the shopify Mm. conference we saw brands like authentic brands group which runs nautica and reba are actually moving to shopify as well wow Yeah, they're doing well. They're doing well. So is that what
0: your agency does? You do Shopify stuff or is there other stuff you do as well?
1: We, we prim- we've prime. we been focused 100% on Shopify Plus since 2014. So we made the shift very early on. Uh, we were Magento partners. We were WooCommerce platforms prior to that in 2012 and 2010. But in 2014, we made the complete shift. It was a massive risk that we took at that point, but it just felt like the right move to make just where, based on the, where the momentum was going. Yeah. And again, at that time, enterprise wasn't the big play, but we saw that the brands, that, especially the multi-million dollar brands that were growing the fastest and making it to the stages of like 100 million plus they were all leveraging Shopify just because of the growth capabilities that we had and we just didn't have to spend so much time developing a bunch of useless features that didn't really help move the needle
0: yeah no fantastic fantastic
1: what are some of the
0: um uh you went to the Shopify conference now let's talk about Shopify for a sec what are some of the interesting features coming out that
1: you've seen that you kind of go that's cool that's really clever I think a lot of the stuff that they're doing on the enterprise side uh, around their point of sale solution and their B2B solution are really fantastic. Um, they've done a lot of different upgrades where Shopify wasn't like the one that you use in store, but now it's mm-hmm. starting to get leveraged because there's a lot more features a part of it. I think the, the B2B focus has been really uh, awesome because they, what they've done is they've actually built a, an online storefront that mirrors what the, the customer experience is like, but for their wholesale customers and like you mm-hmm. can do all these really cool pricing adjustments and, and payment terms and things like that around that. So I, I really love that. I also really love what they've done with like Shopify Markets Pro, uh, which is their international solution and the ability for brands to be able to kind of go outside of their local uh, country and be able to actually publish on multiple different countries where they act as the seller of record. And you don't have to worry about a lot of the legalities and issues about being able to sell in another country. So I think that, that being all those different features that they've enabled have really, really kind of done some fun stuff. In addition, mm-hmm. they kind of launched that they pushed their whole one, one step checkout, um, they're still waiting on getting data back, which is really interesting, I spoke with like the lead engineer on the Shopify checkout side. And they, I am a, I have a lot of history in the checkout process with Magento and I built an app a long time ago around like this concept of like a one step checkout versus a mm-hmm. one page checkout. And everyone thinks that one step checkout always. Overperforms one-page checkout. But in Mm -hmm. my past history, that wasn't the case. And right now Shopify is still collecting data to even determine is a one-step checkout where everything is just on the screen all at once is technically better than uh, one page where it's still one page and you're going through step-by-step but you're not presenting all the information right out the gate.
0: i would be really curious to know that because I was reading the other day something, um, it wasn't necessarily to do with checkouts, it was more to do with forms. And when yeah. you're collecting data from people, if you ask them one question at a time, so you ask a question, it goes to the next question, which takes you to the next question, very much like the um, oh, what's that? Is it true? For, no, true form, type form, type form is the thing that I'm thinking of. Type about, form. You know. yeah. um, and you the, the the evidence is or the data was saying that that way was a much more um, effective way to collect data from people but it may be that that's a more effective way to collect data from people when it's like one or two things like your name and email address or something like that um i i'm very very curious very curious to see what see, yeah uh, see what happens there
1: um well, so we're learning some cool information from that group too because they said it, it depends on industry so like The more you can have auto saved information already that pre-populates a lot of the fields, because like as soon as shop pay turns on or you logged in, everything pre-fills, then having everything on one step, you're just kind of like checking things that everything's right. And you just scroll down and hit complete that actually works a lot better on a one step. But if you're having to fill out information and make sure you're doing every step correctly, the worst thing is that you spent like, you know. 45 seconds or one minute filling all this information out or even longer and then you're told hey there's an error and then you don't know where it is on the page yeah. that's when you people abandon they're just like ah screw it i don't want to do this again yeah I'm bored so it, yeah. that's why you just have to be very mindful of, of of that but yes you're totally right it's really depending on industry as well as kind of a couple of different parameters mm. um, that that dictate whether or not one step versus one page ends up working out
0: you know what's really cool is Um, I mean, other than the fact that you're on the other side of the world and we're talking quite coherently using video technology, which still blows my mind because I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I'm not going to lie. I remember the days when your phone was tied to the wall, you know, and you you had like a six foot radius, which you could walk and that was about it. Um, But it's it's fascinating that, I mean, e-commerce is such a young industry, but here we are sort of debating, you know, what using data we can figure out what's a more effective way to present our checkout. You know, in, in, in different formats and, and understand that. And I, that's, I just think that's cool. That's cool. So, Sub Summit, you're going to be talking about memberships. What are some of the things then that you've seen um, in the subscription business? Uh, again, tying it back to what the title of the, the podcast is, you know, what do multi million brands have in common that we should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, and, and tying it back to, to the original premise, like, the, the multimillion dollar brands kind of look at retention differently. Um, they see retention being extremely valuable and not mm-hmm. just for the additional revenue, but it ha- it's about reframing the positioning. And what I mean by that is that when you invest in your customers, you you build loyalty and when you build that loyalty, you're also building a listening channel that unlocks gems that kind of help your copy and positioning for new prospects. Yeah, you're never going to find this through agencies and outside marketing. Your, your diamonds are going to come from your customers if you're willing to dig deep. And retention is an amazing growth channel. Like it gets looked at as just like a hey, there's the acquisition funnel. And then there's the, the retention funnel. But there's so much that can be done on the retention side that can really not only improve your lifetime value, but that can also lead to a lot of referrals and strong long term loyalty. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the, the conversation I'm going to be having with a few different merchants on stage at SubSummit is actually going to be talking about different practices and methods that they have be able to leverage in the retention side that really go to help improve their acquisition side of things, but also learn these really amazing insights about the consumers. Um, one of the things that we learned working with a what, one of the companies that we work with a footwear and uniform company. And uh, one of the things we've learned is that. They, if you sell the apparel before you sell the footwear and it, the LTV is significantly higher than if you sell the footwear first and then the apparel. Okay. There's, it's because of the way that like the, the way that their products work and like the, the differentiation of it, but like that consumer insight, we wouldn't have learned if we didn't spend enough time on the retention angle and to figure out like, that's a higher LTV coming from that. And so the LTV, like these types of kind of gems, you would only get by paying attention to one data, but also consumer conversations that you're having that on what once they post purchase, and it's not just a survey, sometimes it's actually sitting down with like your most loyal customers and asking them questions, you know, a footwear company like Rothy's that we worked with for a long time sitting down with those Rothies addicts, or sitting down with those groups of individuals, the same thing with athletic and sitting down with like who's been subscribing for you for a long time and understanding what it keeps them, what keeps them using the product consistently, what keeps them buying more. And you'll start learning exactly the words and things that they use and mm-hmm. be able to when you can use those words and reframe it back on the acquisition funnel. It becomes a game changer it becomes such a big because you're now talking the language that they're talking which is what your prospects are wanting and you would Mm -hmm. have never gotten that by like testing 50 different words and scenarios because like you don't know the exact mapping of what the consumer really wants to hear and so i think retention is extremely extremely valuable and it's really important to pay attention to retention numbers and, and what's what retention can give you, but pay attention to that whole funnel because most brands are always paying attention to the acquisition funnels like, hey, what's my CACs? Uh, how can I acquire more customers overall? How do I get top line revenue up? Great. You've if you can do that, you know, what about the whole other funnel side of retention? Because that's a whole you can double your business purely through the retention funnel as well. But mm-hmm. a lot of times they just keep focusing on the acquisition side too often. Yeah. I- <laughs>
0: And it's just this debate which doesn't, it, it never goes away. Um, you know, I, I, you often hear it. Oh, we should focus more on acquisition. Oh, we should focus more on retention. Oh, we should focus. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And actually, I, yeah. I, what, um, I guess what I've noticed from the, the brands that I've seen that's successful, they do both really well. And it's um, the ones that just sort of focus on one end up struggling after a while so if you just focus on retention but you never feed in the top of the funnel you've got a problem if you focus just on acquisition and you don't you know they're going out the back door as soon as they're coming in the front door um you've got a problem and so it's i again i i when i took over the beauty business one of the things that we did was we switched our focus from acquisition to retention um we'd spent you know hundreds if not millions acquiring all these customers and it was kind of like well we've got them now what are we going to do with them and actually when we focused a lot more on retention and started thinking a little bit about that um revenue just skyrocketed you know it just it it went up like 20 30 percent you just went there it was the following you're like geez man the amount of money i'd have had to spend on ads just to get that growth um so yeah i I fully appreciate what you're saying you know it's um the, the retention retention's a funny thing though isn't it because you to do retention well, you've actually got to do customer service. Uh, and this I think this scares a lot of people. Um, I think yeah. a lot of people, certainly in the early days, got into the internet because it just meant they didn't have to do customer service. It's like, well, you don't want to buy it find somebody yeah.
1: else will, you know, that kind of thing. And, and what I would say to that is like I go back to you know uh, the, the recently deceased Tony Shea and, and his work on Zappos um, you know it's always been a game changer for me of like being able to provide amazing customer service and what what that empowers and I've always seen it a little bit differently and, and instead of focusing and thinking about customer service as like a retention what if you thought of customer service as sales agents mm-hmm. and that like what they're really doing is just having conversations to close a sale because if in our businesses like you have salespeople that like they come. If someone comes to talk to you, you have to like discuss mm-hmm. what the proposal is going to be, and then you're working on closing that person. If you don't have your closers, who's going to do that work? Yeah. And so a lot of times the the people are ready to make decisions on your buying, but sometimes they just need to talk to somebody. And like yeah. the best customer service people aren't just trying to give canned responses, which is sometimes like what. what takes away from this whole AI powered like chat programs that are out there. Like, are they really that beneficial if they're not actively selling? Like, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be better that the customer service person is kind of like, tell me more about what you're liking and digging deep and becoming, creating personal connection because what we saw at Zappos, and like what Tony Shea wrote about it a lot in his book and kind of talking about like the, the delivering happiness side of things was like, if you're able to create that relationship with that person, they don't really care that they can buy shoes from five other different places for more mm-hmm. expensive. They're going to keep coming back to you because they have built that brand integrity and that brand loyalty with you yeah. that they don't care about anything else. They're going to want to talk and, and work with you. And I think that's sort of a different model for brands. brands some brands will, will, will not be behind that. They're like, I don't mm-hmm. want to do customer service. But if you see it as a sales thing, it actually becomes fun. And it can some a way yeah. to incentivize how the, the, those programs work.
0: One of the interesting things that we've been toying around with was this. Um, I, again, I'm going back in time a little bit, but you, you used to have in the old days when we ran businesses without the web, um, you'd have uh, customer account managers right? And these people would stay in touch, like you'd, you'd call up every six months, hey, how's it getting on? How are you getting on with whatever it was that they were using from your customer service? Uh, and so you, you you would have this constant stay in touch with them, this constant relationship. And the customer account manager knew the client, so they could send them tailored information. And so I've been for a while thinking, how does this work for e right? How do I get this concept? Because we send out, newsletters like everybody else and we send out sequences but in the middle there's the customer account manager role right so it's, I'm not just waiting for emails yeah. to come in for me I want the, the customer service team to go hey Susan we noticed that you've you know you you're a big fan of this or as soon as they've ordered for the first time I'm sending them an email going hey my, my name's Matt I'm your account manager you here's my direct email here's my direct number you got any questions any concerns going forward you reach out to me and I'll let you know and then in a few months' time, I'm going to reach out to them and say, hey, you tried this. I think this will work really well for you because of X, Y, and Z. This is not on the website. This is only for you. 20% off if you use this coupon code. Try it. Email me back. Let me know what you think. I'd love to know. Well, the success of those emails is quite extraordinary uh, because you, you're, you're talking to ordinary people. Uh, you're having those conversations. And you know who I noticed has started doing this really well is Apple, mm-hmm. Um, so Apple now, uh, I have a, because I just buy so many Apple products, you know, whether that's right or wrong, <laughs> I don't know. You know. Uh, Apple have gone, well, you're a business, Matthew, aren't you? Yes, I am a business. And they go, great, we're going to give you a business manager. And so uh, Alex, I think his name is, um, it used to be Davis. just recently changed. He, he called me up, Um, you know, iPhone 15 comes out, Matt, the iPhone 15's coming out, do you want one? And I said, well, I do now, yes. You know? <laughs> which <laughs> is great. I'll, I'll put your name on the list. And so I didn't even have to go on the website. I didn't have to order anything. You just... And they just send you emails. You click this link and pay for... And it's great and it's wonderful. And I, and I know the website's there and I know I can shop on it, but I, I just get emails from Alex. And Alex goes, well... And now if I want something, I don't even go on the website. I just email Alex. Alex, can I get this? And he'll go, sure. And it's working really well. And there's, there's something about that relationship, isn't there, where mm. um, you can really... Ex- exploits a wrong word, but you can really use that to both yours and your customer's advantage if you just like people,
1: you know? I, I, I can't agree more. And, and we saw this in around 2018, 2019 with the brand that we worked with called Four Sigmatic. They kind of really launched a mushroom coffee world and the chaga and the reishi and these functional mushrooms. And they've done, they've done really well. And, and one of the things that they did early on was they created a membership program, but a part of the membership program and really a membership was just if you buy anything on subscription, you became a member. But mm-hmm. what they did was they provided a membership concierge. Now, this is they did the membership concierge very similar to like an American Express concierge. So if anybody yeah. has an American Express card, they know like they can get on the phone with the concierge service and you can get them to order tickets, you can do booking hotels, like they they do a lot of things for you. Well, similarly, For Sigmatic had a membership concierge. And they what they did was they were segmenting their their groups of audiences. And in Shopify and a lot of these tool sets now, you can segment your groups and say, hey, this is VIP customer or this is a five-year customer versus a four-year customer. And you can they started doing some cool things. They started doing early samples of new products that were they were coming out with. So like you would get sample products and like for free you're not paying mm. for any of this you were actually getting free samples sent to you it's like hey i know you like this protein blend and i think this kind of like really cool turmeric shot would go well with it or this energy shot that'll go well with it and they would figure out and see like what's been sent to you and what's not and it wasn't that complicated they're just tagging the customer as they're sending things out and then they're following up and you could still do it as like a more account-based marketing that you're doing like a group of people versus individual uh so maybe not as tailored towards like the individual hey here's the iphone 15 like you know would you like to buy it but kind of saying hey this 100 people let's send out a message to them still personalize it but it could be like to a grouping of people and you create that that level of support and that level of concierge component and people feel really like you know warm and fuzzy behind that because they're like oh i'm actually being treated as an individual versus just another cog in their system and i think that that's like the type of customer service like there's customer service then there's, then there's that concierge yeah. and kind of that individual part and I think that's instrumental and I think brands have been doing it for some time some of them have been really smart to take advantage of that some yeah. have fallen behind and, and not seen that opportunity and being like there's a massive amount of money to to make and, and by just having this one or two person available on the concierge side yeah. LTV across the board shot up massively so yeah. this paid for those individuals uh, two to like five times over for what they were spending on their salaries. Yeah, I've no doubt.
0: I've And that's my experience, you know, with this whole thing. And I think it's really interesting. You're right. You can bring a level of automation to this account-based marketing. It doesn't all have to be, I've got to send out an email to Joan, Susan, to, and do it all myself. You can bring a level of automation to it if you're smart, but... I think it's something to to really dig into. Um, really, really interesting. Listen, you Nira, know, I'm aware of time, uh, and I've <laughs> we've just got started, my friend. You know, we just we just literally <laughs> we just got started. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, if they want to connect, maybe talk to you about Shopify Plus and and all that sort of stuff. What's the best way to do that?
1: Two ways. Come reach out to, to to me directly on LinkedIn. You can just find me by my name, Nirav Shep. And the second way is just come visit our, our agency's website. It's just simple Anata, A N A T T A dot I O. Anata. And I have to, sorry, I should probably do it with an American accent. Anata.
0: <laughs> I've just got to butcher your company name. Anata.io is what I would say. Um. <laughs> And we should probably get an Aussie to come and do the uh, the Aussie version. Anada. Um, I'm very sorry to all the Australian listeners for my very poor Australian accent. Uh, but um, <laughs> listen, man, it's been it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I I always feel you know whenever we chat, I learn something. I, I take some notes down, uh, and I've I've got some thoughts. I've got lots of notes taken down on my notebook here, and uh, stuff to talk to the team about um so thank you genuinely really appreciate it learned a lot i'm sure the listeners did too uh, you're a legend and i look forward to seeing you uh, in dallas if i don't see you before
1: thank you so much matt for having me i'm really had a, i had a fun time
0: that's awesome awesome so there you have it what a great conversation huge thanks again to nero for joining me today also don't forget to check out E-commerce cohorts. Oh yes, the links on the e-commerce podcast website, which just go to ecommercecohort.com. Come check out that membership group. We would love to see you in there. And be sure to follow the e-commerce podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Because we've got great yet yeah, more great to put my teeth back in. We've got yet more great conversations lined up, and I don't want you to miss any of them. And before, uh before we go, if no one has told you yet today. Dear listener, let me be the first person to tell you that you are awesome. Yes, you are. Created awesome. It's just a burden you have to bear. Nirav has to bear it. I have to bear it. You've got to bear it as well. Now, the e-commerce podcast is produced by Orion Media. You can find our entire archive of episodes on your favorite podcast app. The team that makes this show possible includes the legendary Sadaf Bainon uh and tanya hutzelak theme song was written by the fabulous josh edmondson and as i mentioned if you would like to read the transcript or show notes head to the website ecommercepodcast.net, where everything's there just go just do it uh, but yeah enjoy yourself while you're there as well uh, that's it from me that's it from now thank you so much for joining us have a fantastic week wherever you are in the world i'll see you next time bye for now